0: October two, 2011 lecture discussion number, um, and I've been calling these intermission reviews, and this is intermission review six. And I got to tell you, I am, I am very tired this evening. Yesterday was more concrete, and, and as you know, I'm way too old for that. And my van broke down as we were coming back from Eagle River, so we're very sad about that. That was a that van has, has serviced us well for the last couple of years and now it decided to leave me. It, it, we thought it was gonna, every conceivable warning bell that's in that van went off on the way home and had me and Jane and Lori in it and we thought, wow, will it make it? And, and it did. It got us to the house after we stopped and let it cool off, but um, it's dead. So my, uh, my, uh, my ability to move around is greatly restricted now, so. And I'm really, like I said, I'm, I'm wore out today, but we'll fight through it. Okay, last Sunday, uh, the, the September 25th Sunday was shortened due to renovation projects, as I covered there in the announcements, and, and I'm very thrilled that we got as far as we did. We got much further than I thought, and that was really terrific. And those projects are ongoing, and they're going to be ongoing, ongoing for quite a while. They're incomplete. And I'm known for incomplete or unfinished uh, undertakings. And perhaps you've read my book, Uh, How to Remodel Your Bathroom in Less than 25 Years. uh, I have a sequel now. It's uh, How to Duct Tape Over the Shower Enclosure in Lieu of Replacing the Tile. And both of those are must-haves for the uh, lethargic homeowners among us, especially that latter book. You know, few people are aware, and I am an expert on this, but few, few people are aware the benefits of duct taping over an entire tile wall, entire tiled wall. Gotta get that out right. And there's some real advantages. If, for example, the tile continues to crack and loosen, and you may not think that I actually have done this. Those of you who have seen my bathroom signify that this is my technique. I, I've actually done it. The kids are all going, yeah, this is exactly how it is there. But if the tile continues to crack and loosen, and that results in a catastrophic failure in the enclosure, the duct tape possesses elasticity. It's going to hold 75% of the tile as it falls off. And that allows the shower to remain operational. And though it's, it becomes necessary, eventually the tile falls down and it piles up. So you get kind of this detail. Those on the Internet can't see this. But if you duct tape over the entire enclosure and the tile falls out, you end up with this lump of tile right about there. And there's your tub. It only takes about 20% of the tub's footprint out. You can still negotiate around it. Just get, get right in there. It's fine. It'll work good see it's a membrane system and it's not a serious problem you got room and anyway some amateurs have not duct tape they have uh, they have uh, used a combination of uh, hefty garbage bags and duct tape in the enclosure that's ill advised they're trying to save on duct tape i i've extensively as i said researched and tested both methods and for years and i've concluded that the duct tape only method uh, Uh, Rises to the acceptable standard. The garbage bag uh, technique—it's going to deteriorate after about eight years. And uh, like I said, I'm a trained professional. Your results may vary, but I I recommend—I recommend completely covering it with duct tape. Now, I bring that up because I have to get to that. How long have I done that, dear? How long is too long? Twenty years? <laughs> it hasn't been twenty years, has it? You were the one, weren't you, Anna, that tried the hefty garbage bag technique? <laughs> yeah, but we don't use that shower. Okay. Anyway, um, how would I get onto that? I don't know. We're currently revisiting the twelve-step Hebrew betrothal wedding ceremony, and and this time through it, I've been trying a different approach admittedly because i just didn't want to repeat what i have done in the previous years most what's that yeah probably couldn't remember it obviously i couldn't find it um it's in a box somewhere but i just didn't really want to go through it the way i had before which is a linear fashion it's one step at a time of the 12 steps that's already done beautifully by edward chumney in his his book, the Seven festivals of the messiah, and that 's in your bulletin if you want to see that uh, those twelve steps spelled out for you it 's absolutely critical that you know it, and he does a wonderful job of it my linear uh, linear approach is quite different from mr chumney uh, and, and i I did but i didn 't want to just repeat it what i 've done instead, what I wanted to do instead this time through, and hopefully you 've noticed. Is, I wanted to make sure that I put the emphasis on the vast scriptural references and the implications that come with the 12 steps. For example, I wanted you to know that the Michael Archangel is, or the Archangel Michael, sorry, I am wiped out. I'll just fight my way through it now. The Archangel Michael is a big part of this process. How come? Because he shouts something during this. He shouts something. It's very important to know what he shouts. And uh, Moses and Aaron are very important in all of this. How come? Numbers 20 specifically. Why Numbers 20? Moses is the one, Michael is the one that shouts, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Moses is the one that... Writes, Blessed is he who comes. So we have the coming of the he and the coming of the bridegroom. The, the one who comes, the he who comes, is critically ingrained in, in, in this uh, Hebrew marriage betrothal system. I have the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, um, you need to know the dramatic theodicy element that's here. If I said dramatic theodicy to everyone in the class today, how many of you would know what I'm talking about? You can go ahead and pretend. One, two, maybe three. Okay, let me go back over dramatic theodicy really quickly. That is where God is teaching something to us in Scripture, and he's doing it in a way where he literally acts it out. That is a dramatic theodicy. Or sometimes in the case of Abraham, for example, inner. Uh, he appears to intervene or to try to change God's mind with regard to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is a dramatic theodicy. God is immutable. You can't change his mind. So it seems like his mind is being changed there, but that is not the case. He is acting something out for you there. What is he acting out? He is acting out the conflict that is inside the Godhead between the infinite omnipotent love and the infinite omnipotent justice that is in the Godhead. That is the uh, the basis of Genesis 15. So you have to understand that a lot of what you realize or uh, recognize as the, um, as the marriage ceremony, quite a bit of it is a dramatic theodicy. I also put in the shofar. I wanted you to understand that there are two shofars right? Where do I get the shofars from? You can do this. I get it from the ram caught in the thicket, right, where Isaac is about to be. Uh, he's he's uh, a type of Christ as Abraham is taking him up the very mountain that Christ chooses to be crucified on. There's a ram caught in the thicket. It has two horns. Those two horns are the shofars. I have two shofars. One is blown wind. One has already been blown. Where is it? It was blown at a marriage ceremony at Mount Sinai. The other one will be blown in a marriage ceremony as well. And my position is that it is blown uh, in one of the steps. You can read your steps. Which step is it blown at? Oh, it says so. Too bad. I didn't realize that it was actually written in there. It is blown uh, at step 10. That would be the second shofar. Both of them. Blown during a marriage ceremony context, if you will. I wanted you to recognize that there's a bill of divorcement in Scripture uh, between uh, God and Israel. I wanted you to know that you have these four parables that have become really important here. The parable of the talents, the parable of the marriage feast. Obviously, that one makes sense to you why it would come up. It's a marriage feast, right? That's Matthew 22. It's the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is is huge here because I have the marriage of the ten virgins on the marriage. Wow. The parable of the ten virgins. Which is, of course, has a marriage context to it. So, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. The parable of the marriage feast. Matthew 22, the parable of the denarius, Matthew 20, and the parable of the two sons, Luke 15, um, along with the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, comparing those parables, adding them together, you just, you just take them all and you take all the elements and you make a list and you add all those elements together, you'll find unbelievable amounts of of uh, truth and wisdom there. It's much to be discovered in those when you begin to put them all together. You'll notice when you start reading them, just to kind of go over it just quickly, the, it, they start out almost the same. The, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling in a far country. Pay attention to the fact that it starts out with a kingdom, right? kingdom of heaven is like... It's the teenager's favorite parable. A man in a far country. Who's the man in the far country? You should be able to do that immediately. The kingdom of heaven is like a man in a far country. Who is that man that is in a far country? The the next one would start, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. So you repeat the like. Okay? So now I have two likes and I have a certain king What's the, what's the point of the certain? Who is this certain king? The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now, how many likes I got? I'm up to three likes. Who's the landowner? A certain man had two sons. That's the parable of the two sons, or what you might call the prodigal son parable, but I think it is more accurately the two sons. I have the parable of the two sons. I have a certain man with two sons. Who's the certain man? How many certains do I have now? Start paying attention when you begin to see these kinds of words repeated. Who's telling the parables? God is telling the parables. And and the certain man has two sons. So, That's how you get to the marriage ceremony right there. Do you see that? That's how I get to the marriage ceremony. I have two sons. Who's the certain man? Who's the two sons? Now, add in those ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins. And half of them make it and half of them don't. Right? Two groups. And you have to define, when you start reading these parables and almost anything in Scripture, you have to define like. What does like mean to God? Like what? When he says it's like, what does he mean? And by the way, right off the bat, which kingdom of heaven am I talking about? How many kingdoms kingdom of heavens, do I have? How many kingdom of heavens do I have? Do you know? You have five of them. Which one is he talking about here? He says the kingdom of heaven is like... Which kingdom is it? Is it the eternal kingdom? That's God's rule over all of creation. Is it the spiritual kingdom? That's God's rule over believers. Is it the theocratic kingdom? That's God's rule over Israel. Is it the messianic kingdom, that is God's rule in the millennium, the thousand rule millennium, or is it the mystery kingdom, which is God's rule between the first and second comings of Christ? Which kingdom is he talking about? The kingdom of heaven is like. Well, first thing you've got to do, you've got to define which kingdom of heaven, then you've got to define what "like" means, and then you've got to figure out who is the certain king, who are the two sons, who are the ten virgins, who is the landowner, who are the people working in the field, what is the denarius? All those parables have... Great complexity to them, and when you're studying and evaluating the parables, uh, uh like I said, you, you have to put them together and see how they fit together and see how they add to each other because that's what they're doing. Now, feel free to chew on that while I uh, while uh, whilst I wrote whilst is whilst even a, ver- a word? Is it okay? Feel free to chew on that whilst I go on with today's topic. Wow. I told you last week, didn't I? I don't know if you were all here last week, but Lori came and gave me an empty Coke can. And, and I wondered why she gave me an empty Coke can. And she told me it was because I put it in the dishwasher. and She was giving it back to me. Yeah, that worries me a great deal. And she also told me I turned the dishwasher on, and I have no memory of any of that, and I'd blame it on Seth. By the way, where is Seth? Okay, just checking on you, baby. Because your mom wants to know, every time I talk about you, we send her the sermon. I would blame it on Seth, but I know he would never, never in his life turn on the dishwasher, much less put anything in it. So I know it couldn't have been him. He's automatically eliminated and Lori could be slowly poisoning me to get the huge amounts of wealth that I've accumulated. <laughs> you'll get the van and you'll get the duct tape, dear. Right there, that's all that's left. People accuse pastors of stealing money a lot, and I agree that that's. Oh golly, I'm. Let me be serious for a second. Pastors are renowned all over this country for being thieves some of the richest people in their cities. And this is no exception in this city. And God have mercy on them. I'm not standing next to them when they stand there. I'll be over to the side. Uh, I I may, however, be the worst pastoral embezzler that has ever lived. I'm not good at that at all. I need to... (sighs) My idea of accumulating wealth is through concrete. I got a kick out of Steve after we poured that. Fun with uh, with Lou and Steve and Steve on Saturday, all day Saturday. It takes, how long does it take to drive out there? No, it doesn't. He says an hour and a half. Huh? Yeah, now we're on the south side of town. It takes two hours to get there and two hours to get back. And it's brutal. Absolutely brutal. And then while we're there, we're shoveling for two hours, and we're pouring concrete for two hours, and we're tying steel. By the time we're, it takes 40 hours or whatever to do what we did. And he's, he's stuck. We're loading up the tools out of his truck back into the van that doesn't run anymore. Poor van. I love the van. I bought new snow tires for the van. I believed that it would have life. And now I have to take the tires off of it. What am I going to do? It's exactly the same as your van, isn't it? Yes, is your van here? Is it broke down? Should we tell the manufacturer of this van? (laughs) It goes out to thousands of people, some in Nambia. By the way, thank you, Nambia. I don't know who you are. We'd love to hear from you, Uh, you folks in Nambia. and, and, And it's been amazing to look at how many people are listening to us. We would have never thought that we would reach Nambia, uh, but uh, we're thrilled that you're watching and listening with us. And all you folks in California, that's extraordinary how many of them are in California. Um, and I hope you're here. But let us know who you are. I did have uh, Jennifer call me the other day, and I wasn't home. What was I doing? That's right. I was pouring concrete. Ah. <sighs> Okay, where am I? I've been throwing all of this stuff at you. All of this stuff that I just mentioned, uh, I'm throwing at you. And Let me walk around and tip this over again so you see what's all here. Just, Just so that you can understand the Hebrew marriage contract. Those are all the marriages that you have to know. You have to know Adam and Eve, and that's the two trees. You have to know Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Judah, Tamar, Isaac, Rebecca, which is probably the greatest picture of the marriage contract ceremony, if you will. Moses, Zipporah, why he's a husband of blood, why, why that circumcision is so prominent there. The fact that David raped that Bathsheba, and it's tied to Dinah, uh, Ruth and Boaz, and Hosea and Gomer, it ties to Judges 19. Very important. Jephthah's daughter. Seriously important. Understanding what is happening with her. She is not killed. She is dedicated to temple service after two months. Samson and the Philistine wife and Delilah. Very important. The fact that Abraham had these, Abraham had those three wives, if you will. Joseph, Mary, uh, the, uh, the final, um, Miraculous births. We have seven miraculous births in the Bible. You have to know who they all are. Of course, one of them is Samson, as you would think. That's why we call Christ is from Nazareth, because of the Nazaretic vow. I'm throwing all this stuff at you. You have to recognize what the law of uh, uh, adultery is in Scripture, why there's a death penalty for it. Israel is the wife, the church is the bride, the bill of divorcement, and the marriage contract. All of that you have to know just in order to be able to get through all references to the marriage system that is in Scripture. There's so much of it. It's overwhelming. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to overwhelm you. I've given you as much information as I can, and there's a lot more, and I'm trying to overwhelm you. And yes, you heard that right. I'm trying to swamp and drown and deluge you. Pick your adjective. I'm doing it on purpose, because if I accomplish only this one thing, I used to tell my basketball players, listen, if you could just hold your hands in this position and break that wrist forward, extend the right arm, make sure that this is lined up on the outside edge, the left hand lined up on the outside edge of the basket. If that's all you can learn from me, I have made you a basketball player. And then if you can dribble without looking at the ball, ever. Never look at the ball. you can do that, I've, I've turned you into a basketball player. Two things. And here, if I can accomplish one thing with this, with the Hebrew betrothal wedding ceremony, I want it to be this. It is impossible to fully understand your Bible. Impossible to avoid doctrinal error. Impossible to climb out of infancy. It is impossible to get off the milk and get into the meat. It is impossible to become a teacher of Scripture. And we are ordered... In the book of Hebrews, to be teachers of Scripture, it is impossible to become one without a basic comprehension of the symbol that is the marriage, betrothal, divorce, and remarriage system. You're not going to make it. There's so much of it in the Bible. If you don't know it's there, if you go over it and not realize that it's there, you will not understand what is really there. Does that make sense? You also have to know the Passover pattern, the sign of Jonah. You have to know that you're a spirit, soul, and a body. Substance dualism. You are a spiritual soul component and you are a physical component. You have to understand that your soul component survives physical death. You you have to understand why there's death and sin and blood atonement and resurrection and, and the price paid, if you will. But the price paid is in what? It's in the betrothal ceremony, right? In other words, learn this marriage ceremony. Recognize and find it in Scripture, especially in the words of Jesus Christ. When he talks about it, pay attention. Because if you do, you'll be okay. you got to know that John 14, 1 through 3, I go to prepare a place for you. What is that? That's step eight of the betrothal ceremony. It's why he says it. He's screaming at you if you want to take it that way. He's saying step eight of the betrothal ceremony. Know that Mark 13.32 is the betrothal language, step nine. What's Mark 13.32? Probably one of the most butchered verses in all of the Bible. Know that Matthew 24.36 is step nine. Know that John 14.28 is step eight, nine, and ten. We'll get to those in a minute trying to correctly interpret Mark 13.32, Matthew 24.36, and John 14.28 without realizing that Jesus Christ, that God himself in the flesh, is utilizing phrases from this 12-step marriage ceremony system that he gave, his ordinance. He's utilizing those phrases and terms from that ceremony system. If you don't know that, you're going to fail to understand the context and therefore the true meaning of what he's saying. And I cannot, I cannot count how many times I hear or read somebody attempt to explain Matthew 24, 36. I, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm if i going to read it here. Let me check ahead. Because if I am, I won't do it. I don't think I do. I don't. Uh, let me just take the time. Just let me give you these. Get them into the record. Again, I don't know how many times I hear sermons on this. Supper Dave and I were talking about it just a few minutes ago, not this particular one. but We hear all kinds of sermons because it's what, what he does and what I do. And I can't tell you how sickened I am by so much of it. Uh, let me get you, uh, let's go 2436. We'll start with that. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's essentially Mark 1332 as well. If you don't know that that's marriage ceremony language, you might come to a conclusion, uh, you're gonna end up in an awful mess. It usually disintegrates into some Jesus Christ is not really God heresy. He doesn't really know blasphemy. That happens all the time. You can go online and find thousands of sermons where the pastor says, "Well, Jesus doesn't really know something. He's God, omniscient God. What is wrong with you? Why would you even think like that? How can you get there? If you don't know John 14:28, you have heard me say to you. This is John 14:28. I am going away and coming back to you." If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father for my Father is greater than I. If you don't know that that's out of the marriage betrothal ceremony pattern, you might think that he is saying that the Father is greater than him. That would be butchering that verse. You're in trouble. You're, again, you have got, Jesus Christ is not fully God. It's very similar to what happens in Hebrews 5. Let's go ahead and do that. Just for fun. This is all free. It's not really in the sermon today. If you read Hebrews 5, um, starting at verse 5. Let's just take verse five one. Let me read it to you. For every high priest taken from among men. Notice the high priest. Look at 5.5. 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Notice the high priest. Let's go ahead. Uh, you are a priest forever according to the order of Mel- Melchizedek. That's a five six. Look at 5.10. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. How many times did I read high priest in there? Four times it's there. It's coming out of those verses and smashing you right in the face. If you don't know that that is a high priest context, then you're going to read these things and not get it. You'll come up with some kind of goofy idea and I don't know how to help you. Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered having been perfected, okay? That has baffled people forever because they don't see four times, am I getting upset? I am. They haven't seen four times that the high priest, high priest, high priest, high priest, you'll come away thinking, oh, Christ had to be perfected. You'll come away thinking Christ had to learn something. You'll come away thinking that he was crying over his own crucifixion. All kinds of nonsense. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Understanding that Hebrews 5 is within the high priest. Yom Kippur context solves all of that. Solves the learned obedience. Solves the having been perfected. It solves, notice he's, he's saved from death, not from dying, by the way. God, and it solves the godly fear. you got to know your two goats to understand that. That's what it's telling you. High priest, high priest, high priest, high priest. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. Two goats, two goats, two goats, two goats you don't know your two goats, you're lost. And you'll come up with something that's borderline blasphemy. Okay, not borderline. It is absolute blasphemy. you got two goats, right? you got goat for YHVH, or goat for Jehovah, or goat for Yahweh, whatever you want to do. And you have the goat for Satan, or Azazel. Azazel means Satan. Same thing's true with the betrothal ceremony. And I can't... Um, I can't really explain why very few take the time to figure this out or to rightfully learn the truth. They insist on throwing out all of Scripture because they cannot understand one or two verses. And for the life of me, I can't get it. I don't know why they'll do it. Instead of remaining steadfast to rule number one, what's rule number one? Jesus Christ is God. He's always God. He's always omnipresent. He's always omniscient. He's always omnipotent. Instead of holding on to rule number one, they'll find something like that in Hebrews five, or they'll find something in John fourteen, twenty eight, or they'll find something in Matthew thirteen, thirty two, or they'll find something in, in uh I'm sorry, Mark thirteen, thirty two or Matthew twenty four. They'll find something that they don't understand and they'll throw out rule number one. And they willfully descend into apostasy, like they're drawn to it, like it's a drug. I don't get it. I read a quote recently. A writer said this. Um, I, I wish I'd got his name, but I don't. He said this about Americans, um, and you can you can make the application. I'll make it for you, but you can do it with just this: Americans have become enthusiastic victims of stupid television programs. like, for example, Two and a half brain cells is the number one program in this country. Enthusiastic victims of stupid television programs. Couldn't say better. I wish I'd said it. All I can do is steal it. But the same is true of the contemporary Christians. That's us. Uh, we likewise have become obsessed sucker fishes. Of preposterous theological conclusions we have, it, blasphemy. We like it. We like our heresy, and we're not giving it up. Okay, let's let's try to make some progress here. Uh, let's read. Um, we're going to read Matthew twenty-five six, Matthew twenty-one nine, Psalms one eighteen twenty-six, Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine, Luke thirteen thirty-five, uh, and Numbers twenty knowing also that first Thessalonians four sixteen is out there. I said all of that, not for you folks, but for all the people in Nambia. Okay, Matthew twenty five one. Let's go to work. Start the sermon now. Done ranting. So what happens when I pour concrete? And my van, my beloved van, has failed. Max says he can fix it. And if anybody can, it will be Max. He called me today, Max did. Now, what time did he call me, dear? About 9.30 this morning. Hi, I'm coming over to fix your van. van. You got time? I'm thinking to myself, Max, it's Sunday. I, I know this is hard for you to realize it, but I work on Sundays, Max. Every Sunday for 15 years, as no a matter of fact. And so I asked him, I said, because he goes to college, he's studying engineering. I said, do you, uh, Max, do you ever have to write an essay for college? And he said, yeah. I said, how long do they have to be? Oh, a thousand words. How long does it take you? Three to four hours. Mine's 5,000 words, Max. Oh, you work today, don't you? (laughs) Yes, I'm not just a framer, Max. With you, as much fun as it is, uh, it's really not what I do. Okay, Matthew twenty-five one. Here we go. I'm going to read one through six. The kingdom of heaven shall be like likened to ten virgins. Okay, what's the first thing you got to do? Which kingdom of heaven is it? Got to get that right. If you don't get that right, push into the ditch. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Okay, what's the next thing? Who is the bridegroom? Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. What is the criteria for wisdom? What is the criteria for foolishness? In God's definition, who does God consider to be wise? Let me ask this. Does God consider any unsaved person ever wise? No. Does he consider any saved person to be Anything but wise. Does that make sense? You cannot call... God would never call a believer a fool. Would he? The criteria clearly has to do with salvation in some regard. Does it have it here? Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. I would expect the foolish people to have no oil. What is the oil But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, who's the bridegroom? What is causing the delay? What is causing the delay? Answer that. Come on and do it. It is the pattern that is causing the delay. It is intentional delay. How long has the delay been going on? Almost 2,000 years. That's why you have to know... What's on the other side. Jephthah's daughter. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. What is the definition of slumber? What is the definition of slept? Is it the same? Okay? I have two groups, don't I? I have two sons, don't I? I have all these twos in Scripture uh, figure out who these two groups are. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Why at midnight? That, by the way, is right out of the betrothal ceremony, isn't it? Who's telling this story? And it's about marriage. Christ, God himself in the flesh, the word made flesh, the Lord God Almighty is telling this story. And at midnight of uh, this parable, and at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold! Behold! Because this is, anytime something follows, behold, is going to be critical. The bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Okay? Obviously, we have a betrothal ceremony context beginning at step nine in your bulletin. I won't, well, I'll go ahead and read it here. The bride is consecrated. The bride is set apart. The groom's father gives permission for the son to go to the bride. Uh, that's Mark thirteen thirty-two. The shofar, the trumpet is blown. The bridegroom returns with a shout. Behold, the bridegroom comes and blessed is he who comes. That's step 10. 9 and 10. The bride has been waiting for him. She has been set apart in this parable. And the bridesmaids, what is their job? They're, to, they're part of the processional. They're supposed to accompany the bridegroom and the bride as they went to the prepared home that he made for them, or for the, the two of them, step 8, right? And here at twenty-five, six, Jesus Christ again. Who is he? He is God in the flesh. He's the Lord God Almighty. We have a banner over there. What is one of the names of Jesus Christ? Do you know? It always causes lots of problems for people. One of his names is Mighty Father. Got to know that. He and the Father are what? Same. He and the Holy Spirit are what? Same. They are all the same. It is sameness. Do not separate them into distinct entities. They are triune, not triad. Okay? So here at Matthew 25, 6, Mighty Father, Jesus Christ, tells us at midnight, a shout, a cry will be heard. First Thessalonians 4, 16. Who's that? Who shouts it? Michael the Archangel right? shouts it, and the shofar is blown. Is that the second shofar? Behold, the bridegroom comes. Jesus Christ says that when when the bridegroom comes to get the bride, there's going to be a shout. And the shout is going to be, behold, the bridegroom comes. We compare First Thessalonians 4.16, we find the shofar, and we find the detail of Michael. So add them together. Now, it's important to determine, as I said, which kingdom, uh, which of the five kingdoms is being addressed. Got to know that as well. I should note that there's much disagreement now here over Matthew 25, 1 through 13, over the virgin parable among scholars. Give you an example. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, one of my favorites, as you know. A man that I I have great admiration for, great respect. Um, Frankly, um, uh, I I doubt he listens to me, so I'll say it. Perhaps the the greatest living theologian today. There's nobody, I think, has his depth of understanding with regard to the nation of Israel. Uh, Anyway, he sees these ten virgins as Gentiles, and he bases that on Matthew uh, 25, 31 through 46, which is the judgment of the Gentiles, right? The sheep and the goats. He thinks that is the context. That is a relationship between the talents and the ten virgin, uh, virgins. Uh, but his mentor, by the way, uh, Dr. John Walbert, he identifies the ten virgins as Israel, um, uh, as Israel themselves. And others uh, saw both Israel and the church here. And, and we're going to endeavor to enter the fray and perhaps we'll provide the solution. Yes, uh, uh the one that everyone will agree on. Little Cliffside Community Chapel will end the debate. Uh, no, uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but, but uh, we'll pretend it is and we'll try. But for today, I just want you to know, Jesus Christ identifies himself as a bridegroom. Very important and identifies that, behold, the bridegroom comes, is shouted. And whomever the ten virgins are determined to be, they wake up. And some of them wake up with oil, and some of them don't have oil. Now, adding in again Thessalonians 4.16, we can conclude that the shofar is blown. The second shofar, okay? Now, Matthew 21, 9. Matthew 21, 9. If you're familiar with this, this is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. He's writing what? Uh, okay, I'll, uh, I'll back up. I'll go at 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him upon them. And a very great multitude, by the way, do you know about the colt? And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Why did they do that, by the way? What feast day is that? Okay. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes. So I have, behold, the bridegroom comes. Now I have, uh, let me say it clearly. I have, I have, behold, the bridegroom comes, and now I have, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he came into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, which is why you have to know Samson and the Nazaretic oath. Okay? Jesus Christ, the king, is coming into Jerusalem, and the crowd is saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That essentially means this. Hosanna means save us now, son of David, if you will. Hosanna meaning save us now. So they're screaming at him, save us now, son of David. Who's the son of David? That's a messianic term. And they're screaming also, or yelling out also, blessed is he who comes. And that is Psalm 118.26. Okay, got all of that? So now we add Psalm 118.26. I said this last week. Who wrote Psalm 118.26? Do you remember? Moses wrote it. So now Moses is involved. Here we come. Here's Moses and Aaron now entering in to this marriage ceremony discussion. Now let's go to Matthew 23: 37 through 29 or 39. because Jesus says this: "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones." the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more <coughs> till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he now quotes Psalm 118.26, which Moses wrote. First I have the crowd screams it at him. Now he says, you will not see me again until you say it. Well, wait a minute. Didn't they already just say it? Apparently not. He tells them they weren't willing. Clearly there is something wrong with the multitude crying out, Psalm 118.26. Finally, or not finally... Close to finally, almost finally, Luke 13, 34, 35. I realize that almost finally is not as good as finally. Sorry to get you all excited there. Almost time for the buffet. Luke 13, 34 and 35, but I'll I'll really focus on 35. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Christ, right? The one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. There it is again. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel had rejected the Messiahship of Jesus Christ and they will not see him as Messiah until they yell that. And that was written by Moses, who was also what? Moses was rejected by Israel as well. And I submit, by the way, that the climactic point of the rejection of Moses and Aaron was Numbers 20. That's why we have to go to Numbers 20. But for right now, notice there are two phrases. Let me repeat this. Behold, the bridegroom comes, and blessed is he who comes. Jesus Christ is the one who comes. He is called the coming one. There's two key questions right off the bat, isn't there? What are they? Why does he come? Does he have to come? Let me ask you that. Why? Why does he have to come? Why couldn't he just bag it? Say, "Hey, look, you rejected me as Messiah. I'm, I'm I ain't coming. I had enough." Why didn't he act like us, for example, sinful humanity? What makes him come? That's the key question. That's question number one. Those are the same question. Why does he come? What makes him come? Same question, same answer. Question number two, more complicated. Who does he come for? Obviously, he comes for the church, doesn't he? And equally, obviously, he comes for the nation of Israel, doesn't he? He will come for the nation of Israel when they cry that out. He comes for the church when? And failure to note the distinction between Israel and the church and how he comes and when he comes will result in a misinterpretation of what scriptures teach about each entity. So that's important. Can't say that enough either. Finally, here we are finally. Psalm 118, 21 through 26. Finally means I have one page left to go. I've done four thousand words. I'm on my last thousand. Where's Max? Psalm 118, 21 through 26. Notice the musicians eagerly hoping that I'm almost done. And I wait for them to hide into the office and then I say something really cool that they didn't hear. That's my goal. Uh oh, two are straggling. We'll start at verse 21 of Psalm 118. Who wrote this? Moses wrote this. God used Moses as the instrument. This is literally inspired word. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected. Now, when Moses is writing this, who is he calling the stone? Who got rejected? Moses did he's calling himself the stone now peter uh, uh, ascribes this to christ as the anti type or the greater type or the greater fulfillment understand that's a word that i probably should put on the board um, anti type does not mean against type it means the greater type or the greater or the greater fulfillment of the type This was the Lord's doing, verse 23. It is marvelous in our eyes. Oh, let me back up. Did I say chief cornerstone? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who is Moses talking, who does Moses think he's talking about when he's writing this? He's thinking he's talking about himself. You have become my salvation, he says. Would Christ ever say that about himself? Oh, Christ is salvation. So recognize when it is Christ and when it is Moses. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Okay, There it is. There is the other phrase, I have behold the bridegroom comes and I have blessed, blessed is he who comes. Notice it's not capitalized probably in your book. It should be, by the way, because it is a reference to Christ. But uh, many do think it's purely a reference to Moses and that is not, not correct. The majority of Bible scholarship agrees that psalm one eighteen twenty one twenty six refers both to Moses as deliverer of Israel from Egypt, that was the rejected cornerstone, and they also recognize that it is fulfilled also in a greater way to Christ as deliverer of Israel from the age of the Gentiles as well as deliverer. To of all of mankind, it is a Deuteronomy 1815 fulfillment where Moses says, "You will figure out who the Messiah is by looking at my life because he is going to use elements that he 's placed in my life to identify himself. I am a type of, the, of God the Messiah. Now note by the way, the delivering aspect of all of this: the delivery of Israel and the delivery of Israel, in both cases, Moses and, and uh, Christ. Delivering is important in Scripture. That's why I know that Judas was a deliverer, by the way, and not a betrayer. That's one of my pet peeves. It's impossible to betray the omniscient outside of time creator of all things. That word means deliverer. So Judas as an antichrist, uh, or as the antichrist, you see my other lecture on that, uh, is is being a counterfeit. Anyway, it is true that Israel not only rejected Moses but also rejected Christ and they also sought to kill both of them do you know that you see that Israel sought to kill Moses and sought to kill Christ notice how i said that were they successful in either time no they did not kill Moses they wanted to did they want to kill Aaron they wanted to kill Aaron. In the case of Moses, they wanted to kill Aaron with him. They wanted to kill the prophet deliverer, that's Moses, and they wanted to kill the high priest. And I hope you see the first of the uh, first two of the three offices of Jesus Christ depicted in Moses and Aaron. Okay, Christ is prophet, he's high priest, and then finally he is king. But God intervenes, he protects his typology. How did Moses and Aaron both die? We'll read it next week. How did they both die? Who killed them? God killed them. See how perfect the type is? You can't kill the high priest deliverer and you can't kill the prophet deliverer. Who can kill them? See how perfect the type? Both Moses and Aaron die at God's hand. By the way, is that a bad thing? No, that's a fantastic thing. That's a good thing. Oh, only we could die at the hand of God. How cool would that be? Was it a punishment? No, it wasn't. I'll prove that to you next week. Most people will tell you it's a punishment. I'm going to make the opposite case. Wouldn't you expect that? That it is a reward for great service. Both. Aaron and Moses in perfect harmony with John 19.30. Christ has to give up his life, right? The only one who can kill Christ is who? Christ. Only God can kill God. Can't take the life from God. No one can take the life of Christ. He's God. He must give it up himself. Likewise, God would not allow Israel to take the life of the two types, Moses and Aaron. Next week, we will further investigate. Blessed is he who comes along with behold, the bridegroom comes which puts us in Numbers 20. Okay. Rise to be dismissed.